We're going to spend some time studying the scriptures now. We believe that the Bible speaks to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So I want to invite you to study with us in John. We're calling the study, Who is Jesus? So we investigate the life of Jesus, get to know him better, and through Jesus get to know God the Father better. And so this week we're in John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, open it up to John 4. If you have a a device, open that to John chapter 4. We've got Bibles under the chairs as well. You can grab one of those and turn to page 889. I think you will find John chapter 4 there. This week, we are calling it Jesus Embodies Grace. Jesus Embodies Grace. He is going to show us what it looks like to be the living embodiment of graciousness, of grace, of moving in new directions, of loving what the culture at the time would have considered the unlovable. Um, also, want to kind of coordinate this with Black History Month uh, and let you know we've got a couple of books available. Actually, I think one of the books is already gone, so there's one up here if you want to come grab this one. That's the last one left. But a couple of books I want to recommend to you for Black History Month. One is called Let Justice Roll Down by John Perkins, and this is a great story of an evangelical pastor who left Mississippi when things were bad in the 50s and 60s, um, actually left in the 50s, became a believer in California and felt called by the Lord to come back in the midst of the civil rights movement when things were really abusive and difficult in Mississippi, but came back to share the love of Christ with people there. It's a great story, uh, and it helps you. If, if you're like me, I didn't, I didn't really realize how bad things were at that time in different places in the country, so really helpful education. And then another one, which is uh, not as much a, a biography, this other one is called One New Man by Jarvis Williams. Uh, This one is more just theological, and it helps to unfold that God's plan is, and always has been, that God's people would be from every tongue and every tribe, every kind of person, a multi-ethnic people of God, and that's always been what God has been about, and we're going to see that embodied today in the story we read in John chapter 4. When we think about black history, I want to tell you a little bit of the story of the founding of the largest African-American denomination in our country. Um, In 1787, uh, some African-American men were praying at St. George's Church in Philadelphia, and they were grabbed by the arm and ripped out of the church because they were praying in the white area of the church. Um, And this was just one instance. There were repeated abuses, uh, repeated instances of racism that took place so that Richard Allen felt called by God to gather some other black men and women and some black ministers and form Uh, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is now the largest African-American denomination in the country. And so great denomination, good things have come out of that, but it started because of racism. It started because people weren't embodying the grace that Jesus has modeled for us. And so as we just reflect on our country's history, um, and if you're from another country, you, you see this in every country you go to, right? Every country, every nation has some example of some kind of racism, some kind of tribalism, where we think we're better than other people because of where we grew up or what we look like or where we were educated, Jesus breaks down all those stereotypes for us here. He he just kind of dissolves all those walls and he says that's not how it's supposed to be and he shows us what grace should look like in interacting with other people. So we're going to read chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 1. And here we're going to see Jesus interacting with a Samaritan woman. The Samaritans at the time were seen both as racially other, so there was racism involved, but also... A religiously other. And then we also learned this woman also morally was other. She was uh, sinning and had uh, problems with sexual immorality as well. So kind of other and outsider in multiple different ways. And Jesus shows grace to her. So chapter 4, verse 1, 
Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So basically, the note here is just saying it was getting hot. It was getting heated, right? The, the resistance with the Pharisees was heating up because he was beginning to win a crowd. And so he said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift and go to another place because he wasn't really ready for that conflict to come to full boil yet. Um, so we pick up in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, uh, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour means middle of the day, so sixth hour from dawn. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, I already told you that, but here it is again in the text. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. We'll stop there. And uh, let me pray for us that God would, would help us, that he would teach us. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we do pray that you would teach us and that you would um, show us what are the next steps for each of us as your Holy Spirit opens our eyes and shows us our need of you, our need for your grace personally, but then also our need um, to embody that grace and share that grace with others. So we pray that you would lead us and, and direct us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we move through the story, um, we're going to see three things which, you know, primarily is because I like to give three-point sermons. Um, but I do think we're going to see these three things. We're going to see, first of all, that Jesus is embracing an outcast, right? This is an outsider in many different ways. I already said that, in, in multiple levels, an outsider to his culture. Jesus embraces outcasts. And so in that way, shows us what it looks like to show grace, embody grace. And then we're going to see that Jesus challenges this outsider, challenges us. So Jesus embraces, but he also challenges, Right? And then the last thing we're going to see, and this is kind of a weird point, but it'll make sense when we get there, Jesus loves his job, okay? Jesus loves his job. So first of all, we're going to see Jesus embodying grace by embracing an outcast. Look at this in verses 1 through 15. I already read this portion. Um, think of it this way. In this situation, she was an outcast in every way you could be an outcast, right? The Samaritans historically had been people during the exile period who intermarried with others who had come through. And then already before that happened during the exile, 
they were already engaged in false worship. So then you've got false worship taking place. They're not properly worshiping the God of the Old Testament. And then you've got intermarriage and other false worship layered on top of that. And so it's kind of a mix of racism because these were half-breed Jews. They weren't racially pure uh, Jews, but also cultism. Uh, What I want to help you to understand, though, is that the Bible, often we read wrongly thinking that the Bible in the Old Testament was racist, that God was demanding of the Jews to be um, physically pure, right, in a way of like not intermarrying with other tribes. And what I want you to understand is we're misreading the Bible when we read it that way. Because when the Bible talks about intermarriage, it's talking about religion. It's talking about faith. The Bible is always encouraging us to not bond our lives with someone who believes in satanic worship or some other kind of worship. It's saying, remain faithful to me. And if you marry someone that's not faithful to me, that's going to pull your heart away. And so that's what the Bible's talking about in the Old Testament. And again, modern people often misread that, right? We do a surface reading. You know, your college professor's like, hey, look at this terrible verse in the Bible, but they haven't really understood it in context. So it's not a racist document. It's a document that says that you should be faithful to God. And there are multiple, multiple times when people of other races were invited in to the Jewish people, into the people of God. So I just kind of want to lay that out to you. If you find one of those verses in your own Bible reading, bring it to me. I'll help you work through that. Um, it's clear in all the situations that God was calling them to be faithful to him. He wasn't really concerned about the color of their skin or their genetic makeup, right? We just confuse it because he would talk about it in tribal terms, right? So basically, like in our terms, it'd be saying, you know, don't go marry with the people of that town because they're following another god. And that was understood. But we just read, don't marry the people of that town, and we think it's a racial thing, right? So the Bible has always been about a multi-ethnic people of God. We have to understand that that's the background. But the Jews, just like us today reading it, the Jews misunderstood that often, and they would mistake their racial purity for faithfulness to God. And so they were racist often in their dealings with other people. And there's a great example of this in the Samaritans. Uh, We understand that it says he had to walk through Samaria. um, And what that's saying is because it was the shortest path to get to Galilee. Now, if you've ever heard this taught before, a lot of commentators will tell you that Jews never walked through Samaria. Now, it's not an absolute because sometimes they did, but it's more like the most self-righteous and strict Jews would not walk through Samaria. An illustration would be like if you're driving from Texas to Nebraska, It would be saying, the people of Oklahoma are so hideous and disgusting. I don't want their cooties. I'm going to drive around Oklahoma, right? No offense, Oklahoma's. My people are from there, so that's why I'm picking on Oklahoma, okay? Um, So it's it's saying, I just want to avoid, I don't even want to go there, right? And we see that today in in minor ways, like there might be a rough neighborhood. You're like, ah, I don't really want to go to that grocery store. I'll go to the other one. You know, it's like, I just feel safer here. You know, so we see smaller versions of that today. So most really strict Jews would avoid going through Samaria. But Jesus went the straight route. The other thing that commentators say about Jesus having to go through Samaria was the sense of he was doing the Father's will and he knew Father, the Father had worked for him there, right? He knew that the Father had someone for him to talk to there in Samaria. So we see Jesus breaking with tradition, coming through here. The other thing I want us to think about is what is an outcast for us today? Before I get more into the text, what are the levels of outcast that we see as people that we're not having close communication with or people that it would be hard for us to embrace? What would be those categories in your own life? Because I think what this is going to do is it's going to show Jesus embracing outcasts, and then the next step is for you to say, well, who are the outcasts for me to embrace? 
So let's think about those categories. Um, one category would be people of uh, other religions, right? Which is what she was. People who believe things that you don't believe. Are you afraid that their false belief will contaminate you or do you see a relationship with them as an opportunity to share the hope that you have in Jesus? That could be an outcast that maybe that you're avoiding. Um, maybe it could be immorality. This woman we see from the text was involved in sexual immorality. She was involved in a life of sin. It said she had five husbands and the guy she was with wasn't her husband. In the first century, this wasn't just a matter of multiple marriages, right? Which even today we would say, ah, there's, there's, looks like you got a problem there. You know, you got a bad track record. But it was even worse in this day because functionally she would be living as a prostitute at this point. After a couple of marriages in this society, you would be functionally living as a prostitute with other men. So it would be even, even worse than how we would understand multiple marriages in our culture. And so she was steeped in sexual immorality. She was involved in what we would call immoral things. My question for you is, who are the outcasts in your life? You're like, they're immoral. Maybe I should avoid them. Do you have that same kind of fear like the Jews of that day that, that maybe their, their sin might get on me, right? And we see in Jesus a fearlessness where he's willing to embrace these outcasts. He's not worried about it. We see this typified in, in other stories where Jesus is willing to touch and show love to a leper, right? Someone with a hideous disease. So who are those people in your life that you're like, huh, I don't know if I should show love. I don't know if I should show friendship. I don't know if I should be close to this kind of person. Um, and also race, right? There might be people that have a different race than you. Maybe you've been taught to not trust them, right? Maybe someone of that race hurt your parents, and so you grew up hearing stories where you can't trust those kinds of people. Do you, do you have those kind of stories in your background that makes it hard for you to show dignity to every person and say, no, every person is made in the image of God. Who are those categories? What are those categories of outcast in your life? And maybe it's just social. It might not be racial, right? For some of us, it's just those people like different music or they talk differently than I, you know, I don't understand them. I don't, I don't get those people. So I want us to be thinking about who are those people. The last category I think might be the hardest. Um, the last category of outcasts might be people in your own family, Right? might be that brother or sister that you've never really gotten along with. You've never really understood them. You have this expectation that you'd be really close and you'd get along, but, but you just don't. Maybe God's calling you to love that person, to embrace that person in a new way. Maybe you'll understand through this text a new way to, to embrace that person. It, it might be a spouse, right? I do marriage counseling with people sometimes, uh, not very well. Um, but often we can see our spouse as the other, as this outsider. I think even in those most close relationships, Jesus is giving us a model here of what it looks like to love someone who doesn't see the world the way that you do, who doesn't maybe get along with you or respect you or show the care that you want them to show to you. So here we see Jesus embracing this outcast. How does he do it? Um, verse 6 says, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. Um, that sixth hour is also a clue to her um, immorality. She was avoiding all the other people. Um, the sixth hour is the middle of the day, the hottest time of the day, right? Like when it's August, you don't just go sit out on a park bench at noon, right? When it's 108 degrees outside, you just, you just don't do that. She's doing that because she's avoiding the other women. The other women would have gone to draw their water early in the morning or in the evening when it's cooler. But here she is avoiding social contact. So again, this is just another clue that, it's, that she's socially an outsider. Jesus, he's hot, he's tired, it's hot outside. 
They're traveling. He's sitting down. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, it sounds a, 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 possibly a little rude, just give me a drink, right? We would say, give me a drink, please, right, in our language. Uh, in that language, that would have been fine. That wasn't rude. So it, it sounds a little rude in English, but he was just speaking to her in a normal way. And so what I want you to see here is this beautiful roadmap for a way that we can embrace outcasts, those that seem other than us, and that is being vulnerable with our needs. If you're a follower of Christ, there's this temptation to want to pretend that you have it all together. I feel this temptation, I'm sure you do too, where you're just like, well, if I really want to minister to someone's needs or if I really want to help someone, I've got to like swoop in with my cape on and have it all together, right? And, and be this strong person that knows all the right answers, that doesn't get tired, that doesn't get sweaty and hot, that doesn't get thirsty, right? Like Jesus. And we see here Jesus, perfectly God, perfectly man, no sin, being willing to show his vulnerability. Are you willing to share your vulnerability with people? That is a way to connect with other human beings, to be real with them, to say, I'm thirsty. Do you, do you have something to drink? Can you share with me? It's just a beautiful picture for us from Jesus, right? Because we always think of Jesus as, oh, he was God. He had no needs at all. No, he, he lived as a person. So he knows what that's like for us to live as a human being and have these physical needs. He would get tired and take naps. He would get thirsty and drink water, right? And he was willing to share those needs with people. I, I see this in marriage, but also in far kind of very distant relationships on both sides, right? The most extreme scenarios where you have nothing in common and those scenarios like in a marriage where you're at war with each other, we come to a point where we're no longer willing to share our needs, our vulnerability, because we don't trust that person. And if I share that I have weaknesses, they might hurt me, right? Jesus gives this model. He's, he's absolutely secure. He has no problem sharing his needs. Why? Because he's secure in the Father's love. Remember back to the beginning of John, this picture of his closeness with the Father. It's perfect love, a perfect community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Absolute security. He trusted the Father. Do you trust the Father? If you trust the Father, that will translate into an ability to be open, like, yeah, I'm thirsty. Yeah, I have weaknesses. Yes, I can't do everything. I need your help. Can you help me? Translates into the ability to say that. And then here's the other thing, okay? When you share your needs with somebody and they're unable to help you, you don't, them at you don't attack them, right, <laughs> for being unable to help you meet that need. How dare you? I shared my vulnerability with you and you didn't help me. Just, like, get over yourself, okay? Be secure in the Father's love. If you have a need, share your need. If someone can't meet it, that's okay. And you move on. You trust that, that God is in control and he's with you. Jesus gives this beautiful roadmap for how to embrace those that are different than us. We have this really interesting picture uh, from a beer commercial. It came out, I think it was just last year, a couple years ago. Um, what they did was they, and it was, it was a Heineken commercial, they did this with multiple people where they would get people purposefully who had very different views, right? Different religious views, different morality views, different political views. They would interview them, and then they would set up people that were utter opposites. What they did then was they had them come together and work on a task together, not telling them that they had opposite views. And then after they had worked on a task together and kind of bonded a little bit, they had them you know, do some question and answer and get to know each other a little bit. Then they showed the video of them spouting the, the opposite views. And then they realized, oh, this, is, this person is the other, right? This person is a person that doesn't agree with my fundamental beliefs. 
And then they said, do you, want, do you still want to sit and get to know this person? Sit and have a beer together? Or do you want to go your separate ways? Right? And they gave us this opportunity. Of course, I think what the ad is trying to say is that Heineken is the secret <laughs> to bridging these gaps, right? And I'm not going to go that far. But I do think they're, they're just modeling, yeah, when human beings share life together, that helps bridge the gap a little bit. I would say, what's the rest of it? What helps us complete that distance? Well, it's that security we have in the Father's love, right? Because if you're not secure in the Father's love, you can't trust anybody. You can't trust your closest friend. There's no one that's trustable if God is not taking care of you. But if God's taking care of you, if you're secure in his love, then you, can't, you can take the risk of trusting other people. You can share your vulnerability with them. And then like Jesus, you can also be bold. And that's the really fascinating thing. Embracing people looks like sharing your need and your weakness and your vulnerability, it also looks like being spiritually bold, right? Because what does he do? He doesn't just leave it there. He's like, yeah, I'm thirsty. And then he's like, oh, by the way, I know about true living water, right? If you come to me, you never be thirsty again. Let's go back to the text. He says, give me a drink. Samaritan woman's like, how's it that you asked me for a drink? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and you would have, he would have given you living water. Woman said, you don't have anything to draw with. You know, basically she's like, who do you think you are? He comes back again, verse 13. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's talking about spiritual satisfaction. Saying the spring will spring up from within you. Now, I would argue to, to complete that thought, he's not saying you will never experience the sensation of thirst again. What he's saying is you will have with you at all times the living water. So that every time you experience that thirst, you can say, you know what? The five husbands are not the way to satisfy this thirst. Jesus is. You know what? The job is not the way to satisfy this thirst. Jesus is. My addictions are not the way to satisfy this thirst, but Jesus is. So that living water will go with you wherever you go in life. So that's what he means when he says never thirsty again. Of course, you're walking with Jesus. You're going you're gonna to be thirsty again next week. You're going to be desperate again next week, but the living water goes with you. He stays with you. And he's going to say similar things later on in John chapter 7. And so because this living water goes with you, then you can be secure in the Father's love and you can embrace outcasts like Jesus. You can be both vulnerable and spiritually bold with people, inviting them to come be satisfied in that same spiritual living water that you found as well. The next thing that we're going to see is that Jesus also challenges us, right? So he doesn't, he doesn't just embrace her, right? Uh, today's world, Christians tend to divide up into two sides. We tend to be the like embracing kind. We love everybody, but we will not draw any lines in the sand kind of Christians. And then they're the kind of Christians that it's all lines in the sand. It's all challenge. There's no embrace. What we see modeled with Jesus is both. He embraces people. He shows dignity to them. Like every person is made in the image of God. I'm going to show grace to them. I'm going to show love to them. I'm going to show respect to them. And he also challenges her. He's like, well, yeah, there, there are issues. There are broken things in your life that need to be dealt with. And so I think, again, this gives us a model of what it looks like to live out grace to other people. We're, we're willing to love people unconditionally, 
even if they are the farthest out there involved in sexual immorality, part of a cult, different race, different tribe, we don't agree with them, we can still show love, we can embrace them. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He's willing also to challenge her. So we see this transition where she says in verse 15, okay, you've convinced me. I want the living water. Let me have some living water. She says, sir, give me the water so I won't be thirsty and I won't have to come here to draw water anymore. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. So he shows her the deeper need, right? So he starts off like, you need living water. She's like, okay, I'm in. And then he's like, okay, now let's talk about the other ways you've been trying to satisfy your spiritual thirst. Go call your husband. She says in verse 17, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And that's where she's like, I see that you are a prophet. (laughs) Um, He's made it very awkward. He's gone deep. He's gotten into her personal space, right? He's talking about her personal sin and shame, story of addiction, story of pain, story of immorality. And what does she do? She does what you and I do, like, often in our Bible studies, right? If you've ever been in a Bible study, this is real common Bible study behavior. Um, Text is talking about something real personal and deep that makes you feel threatened. Spirit's convicting you, I need a change. What do you do? You start talking about theology, Right? You start talking about big global things, you kind of back up, you make the text objective, you, you take away the subjectiveness, right? So he says, you've got a sexual sin problem in your life. God's plan in the scripture is very clear, one man, one woman, forever, and she's violated that, right? And as I said, not just that, but she's functionally in this day and time living as a, as a prostitute. And so Jesus is holding to something that a lot of Christians are confused about, Jesus still believes in the morality of the Old Testament. Christians are under the new covenant, which means we don't don't do all the uh, ceremonies of the Old Testament. That means we're not a nation state anymore. We're this multi-ethnic tribe of all peoples, all places. But we still hold on to the morality of the Old Testament. Jesus is constantly reaffirming the moral worldview of the Old Testament. He's doing it again here. He's like, yeah, you've got a sexual immorality problem, but sexual immorality is not just breaking rules, right? That's how we think about it today. Our non-Christian friends are like, it's just an arbitrary rule, and why does God have to even care about that? No, God cares about it because it's an alternative form of worship. When we're engaging in sexual immorality, we're saying, this can satisfy my soul, and God's saying, no, it it won't really satisfy your soul. So he's drawing her to this, and she's like, well, I see you're a prophet, and which mountain should we worship on, right? And she's trying to go global, and she's trying to go abstract theological because she doesn't really want to deal with her own junk. So I just want to encourage you, when you're in a Bible study or when you're in a church setting like this, don't pick on the peripheral things, right? Don't, don't pick at the theology. Don't like go off on a tangent. Deal with what the Holy Spirit is attacking in your heart in this moment, in that place, at that time. We, as human beings, and I do, I do this as well, we have this profound ability to avoid what really matters, right? And so you might be avoiding what really matters by just running to your diction, or you might be avoiding what really matters by going to a Bible study and not talking about what really matters, right? And so here he's, he's bringing it home. This, this is the important thing. And again, it's true for all of us. This is the same kind of thing he was saying to Nicodemus last week, right? Nicodemus, you're the most religious guy in Israel, and you're still lost, right? You're using your religion to avoid me. Here she's using her immorality 
to avoid God. We all have different ways of avoiding God. He says, the living water is the issue. Verse 20, she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You say that mountain. Where should we worship? Jesus said, believe me, the hour is coming where the mountain doesn't matter. We're moving into this new realm where the ceremonial law, which is located geographically in the capital of Jerusalem, is going to fade away. And that's not going to matter anymore. What's going to matter is your connection with the God of the Old Testament. Do you know him? And Jesus is going to say the only way to know him is through Jesus. He says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Salvation comes from the God of the Old Testament that promised that Jesus was coming. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. It's not enough, enough to just like worship him culturally according to your preferences. Are you worshiping him in spirit and truth? Do you know him? Is the spirit residing in you? Do you know the truth of who he is and how he's revealed himself? Do you know Jesus personally, which is where all of this is heading? The woman said, I know Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all these. She's like, okay, yeah, there's going to be a Messiah that's going to sort this out for us. And, and then he says, I'm, I am he. Jesus says, I am that Messiah. I am the Christ that you've been looking for. Isn't that crazy? That's like a crazy reveal. Here I am, you know. <laughs> I'm like, what, what does she do in that, in that moment? And then we're, that'll, that'll take us to the next point. So we'll, we'll pause there for a moment. And think about the way that Jesus challenges us. Jeremiah gives a beautiful summary of what Jesus is saying. So Jeremiah 2.13 says this. My people have committed two evils. Two evils. Here they are. My people have committed two evils. Number one, they've forsaken me. The fountain of living waters. Right? This living water thing is not some new metaphor that Jesus came up with. The, the Old Testament is full of it. It's, it's all over the place. Ezekiel and then Isaiah, the call to worship we read this morning, it's all over the place. It's really crystal clear here. Jeremiah 2.13. One evil, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. What's the other evil? They've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So there's this funny interplay here. The well they're drawing from is not a living well, meaning there's not like a living spring bubbling up, but it's just a well that holds water, like a cistern. Living water is a term for a spring-fed source, which is cleaner and more pure. So in the, in the you know, ancient world, really all over the world still today, you can have a place to hold semi-clean water, that's better than nothing, or you can have a living spring, that's fantastic and clean and pure. And you don't have to worry about it going bad or getting muck in it. Here's a picture of a first century cistern, that would be a word for a a well where they just hold rainwater. Those of you that have gone to the Middle East, I know you, you've seen this. It's common in the Middle East to have just like a giant rain barrel on top of your house that would collect water. They do things like this in different ways all over the world. This one would be at the bottom of a hill. They would build it out with rocks, and then they would plaster it and just basically build a well, build a giant barrel to hold water. What Jeremiah is saying is that all human beings build something to hold dirty water to satisfy our spiritual thirst, but it can't really hold water. It can't really keep the water clean. We need to run to God. He's the only one to make us clean. He's the only one that can satisfy our thirst. That's what Jeremiah is saying. So for us, again, are you, are you doing that in a religious way? Are you like Nicodemus saying, 
I'm gonna be so religious, I don't ever have to go to God for anything. Are you like the woman caught in immorality? And that's where you're trying to satisfy your spiritual thirst? Where's the place that you're going? Jesus is saying, come to me. Don't, don't run to those things any longer. <coughs> I need to think, take a drink. Here, we'll, we'll transition to the last point here. Jesus loves his job. How many of you love your job? A lot of you. Wow, impressive. Okay. Well, I wrote this point thinking that none of you really love your job, okay? <laughs> so you just ruined it, people. Um, Jesus loves his job. I want to frame this in two different ways. He's talking about the job of doing the work that God has called him to, the spiritual work that God has called him to. Um, I think in a broader sense that also applies to any of us and our vocation, our broader vocation, right? We have a, a vocation, a calling, a job to do what God tells us, right? Tell people about Jesus, live a holy life, obey him, honor him. But we also have a broader job, right? Like you might be called to be a, a teacher or a soldier or an engineer, and you have a job to use your gifts, your skills, make the world a better place. You get a paycheck for that, but you're also spreading God's glory through your work, right? I think it applies at both levels. It applies at doing the specific work of sharing God's glory and, and spreading his word to other people. It also applies at the base level of just being a, the best candlestick maker you can be, right? The best baker you can be, doing those things for God's glory. And it's really fascinating here. So we've got this, this structure where you see the woman he's been talking to be the kind of disciple we should be. And then in the middle, you've got her at the beginning and her at the end, being a good disciple, doing the work the Father has called her to and the work that Jesus has called uh, to as well. And then in between, you've got this conversation with the disciples where they don't really get it, right? So I think this is good for us as followers of Jesus, like, oh, okay, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not doing it kind of like the disciples, right? Like maybe I'm missing it as well. So in verse 27, we have this little transition. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do, you speak, uh, what do you seek or what are you talking with her? I love these little asides, right? Like the disciples were confused because he was violating cultural norms, but nobody said anything about it because they were scared of him, okay? <laughs> Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him then. So here she is being a disciple, Right? even though she's like the ultimate outcast. Look at verse 30, where are we? I lost my place. Verse 31, thank you. I really need to get those glasses. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? They're still like all confused, right? <laughs> like, wait, we just went and brought sandwiches and now he's already eaten, what's going on? They're so confused, he's going to explain. He's very patient with the disciples. Jesus said to them, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food, you know what, fee, what fills me up? Is to do what God has sent me to do. And I hope you see that this is the same theme that he's been talking about with the woman at the well, right? He just switched from thirsty to hunger, right? But it's the same thing, right? What sustains me, what fills me, what gives me life is to do what God has called me to do. That fills me. I love it. And often it's not, it's not what fills us up. So he's like, doing my father's work, that, that's what fills me up. That's my food. 
now he's going to go off on this weird analogy where he's going to kind of lay before them the work that they could be doing, okay? He's going to use an analogy that's, that's kind of similar in other places in the Gospels about the harvest. So harvest, those of you that have never had a garden or grown up on a farm, is like the time when all the fruit and vegetables are mature and you start collecting them, right? That's the coolest time, right? That's when you get the, the fruit and the vegetables and you get to enjoy the good stuff. So he's going to say spiritual work is like that. Now, in other places, we understand that spiritual work is also like weeding and water. You know, it's that other less fun stuff. But he's like, look at, look at all this great opportunity here, okay? So he says in verse 35, do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See, the fields are white for harvest, right? He's talking about the wheat turning white as it's, it's coming to, to full maturity. He's like, look, it's ready to be harvested. Verse 36 Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, you've entered into their labor. What he's saying here is like, guys, like, you have this great opportunity to just go out and collect the fruit, right? There's this incredible opportunity. It's gonna be so fun. Do you see it? I grabbed a picture of someone collecting blueberries. Any of you ever done that? Like there's places in the hill country you can go and collect like blackberries and strawberries and stuff. It's really fun. I'll always remember this picture of my four-year-old with like blackberry juice dripping down her face. She looked like a vampire kind of. It was really cool. But, um, but it's so fun, right? You pay them a little money for the joy of doing this work, <laughs> right? Like I'm paying them so I can go work in their field. I'm paying them so I can collect the fruit and then enjoy it. And Jesus is saying, that's what it's like to do the Father's will. It's just, it's incredible joy. And I think for us, part of why, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff he's saying here, reasons we miss it, right? But part of why we miss it is because we don't love the Father in the same way that Jesus loves the Father. Jesus loves the work because he loves the Father. And then again, we have the wraparound with the Samaritan Woman, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay, and he stayed two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. So again, we see this beautiful picture of the ultimate outcast being turned into the ultimate disciple, running and telling her friends with joy. And Jesus is using this as a lesson, telling his disciples, like, yeah, that's, that's really all it is, right? Telling other people about the joy you found in me. And why does Jesus love to do this work? Why does it fill him up? Because he loves the Father. There's this great verse in 1 John, a little letter of 1 John, right? So this is the Gospel of John. There's a shorter letter he wrote later on in the Bible called 1 John, 1 John. And I've got it written in my wedding ring. My wife and I, it was really important to us we grew up kind of from a, a crazy, broken background, both of us. And we had great confidence going into marriage that we have no idea what we're doing, right? But God loves us, so we'll figure out how to love each other, right? And so we put this verse in our wedding rings. It's First John 4, 19. It says, we love because he first loved us. And so I think that's the ultimate solution here, right? Like Jesus loves the Father. So he loves doing what the Father calls him to do. He can love other people because he's loved by the Father. And we can enjoy the same thing. If you know that Jesus loves you, if you know this whole story, where it's going, that Jesus took your sin 
that Jesus has put you back in relationship with the Father, if you trust that, if you trust the resurrection life that he gives to you by faith, you can know that closeness with the Father even that Jesus knows. As we saw in chapter one of the Gospel of John, there's this closeness, this intimacy. He knows the Father's love, so he has joy in doing the Father's work. I'm not calling you guys to like add one more thing to your list. Oh, here we go. Time to volunteer for the nursery, right? Time to, time to give more money to the church. Time to teach Sunday school. No, I'm, I'm calling you to do those things because you can't help it, right? We do whatever that is, and I'm not saying do all those things at once, right? I'm just saying we do these things where we make friends with a neighbor or where we teach a Sunday school class or where we repair a breach with a family member we haven't talked to in years. We do these things. We show this embrace. We show this spiritual challenge. We show this kind of love because we love what God has called us to because he loved us first. That, that's the message. Jesus loves because the Father loved him first. We love because he first loved us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us so much, that you've taught us how to embrace others. Um, God, you know that some of us are in a place where we've, we've drifted from that. Um, so some of us, God, some of us this morning, we feel absolutely trapped in a cycle of addiction or immorality that we don't see it being possible that we can come out of. And we thank you that you embrace us and you just say, come as you are. Some of us, Father, are embroiled in this, this cycle of uh, religious faithfulness where, where we're trying so hard to be right, we're not actually trusting you. We're trusting ourselves. And so we're doing work, Lord, but we're doing it in bitterness. We're not doing it out of the overflow of your love. We're not loving the work that you've called us to. And God, you... You love us as we are. You say, come, come as you are. And so, Father, we pray that as we respond with the song, that you would help us to believe it. We would come to you as the source of living water, as the one who forgives us for our sins, for our sins of addiction, for our sins of religious avoidance. Help us to trust you. We thank you that you love us. We pray in Jesus' name.